0: Isaiah chapter number 5, we'll take some time at the end of the service and pray. Isaiah chapter number 5 is where we'll be tonight. We began last Wednesday night here in Isaiah 5 and we began uh, really a a series, I don't know how long it'll be, I don't know how many messages it'll be, but uh, a series regarding the woe passages in the Scriptures and we made the statement last Wednesday night we're not going to do that so that you can come to church on Wednesday night and leave filled with gloom and doom because we're looking at the woe passages no we're doing it to remind us of how vitally and excuse me important it is to be salt and light because when the people of Israel especially the men stopped being who they were called to be that is when the woes came. God just didn't. Uh, we would use the phrase sometime willy nilly. You know, God just didn't willy nilly choose to judge the nation of Israel. He was very long suffering, was he not? Uh, he he was he was very merciful and gracious with the nation of Israel. By the way, we find that right here in the verse. Excuse me, first seven verses. This is what we looked at last week. We didn't even get to the woes last Wednesday night. We just looked at the first seven verses. And let's do that again just real quickly. Let me read. And we saw last Wednesday night how God did everything He could to make the nation of Israel or to allow the nation of Israel to be successful. But ultimately it was their choice. Ultimately it was up to them whether they were going to obey God or whether they were going to disobey God. Whether they were going to take advantage of everything that God had done for them, or not. We, we gave you last Wednesday night, I gave, gave you, if you were in here, we looked at five different words and they all began with the letter P. And we talked about how God prepared, we talked about how the Lord planted, how the Lord protected, the Lord perceived. He, he did the first three and then He looked. And He was looking for grapes, but instead of grapes, what did He find? found wild grapes. And then we said, number five, the Lord punished. And that's what we're going to begin to look at tonight in verse number eight. But look at verse number one. The Bible says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He, he prepared it. He planted it. He put it in a good place. By the way, the nation of Israel, the land of Canaan, the promised land, was a land that flowed with what? Milk and honey, it was a fruitful place. Verse number 2, And he fenced it, he protected it, he gathered out the stones thereof, he prepared it, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked, that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. God takes His hand of protection off of the vineyard. And none of us tonight want want to live a life without the hand of protection upon it. Or see, without uh, without God's hand of protection on it is what I'm trying to say. You you don't want to live a life without God's hand of protection. By the way, I believe America is living right now without God's hand of protection. That's a bad place to be. He says, and now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof and it shall be eaten, eaten up and break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold oppression. For righteousness, but behold a cry. He's looking for grapes. He's looking for men of of justice. He's looking for men of righteousness. But what he found in verse number 7, instead of judgment, he found oppression. Instead of justice, he found those who were doing the opposite of justice. He found oppression. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry. And the cry was because of the oppression. The cry was because of a lack of righteousness. And then tonight, here in verse number 8, we begin to see the six woes that we find in Isaiah chapter number 5. And these six woes give us a description, characterize what type of people there were at this time, what they were doing, what brought these woes on. And as we begin to look at these, we are shown what brought the woes on to the nation of Israel. Notice verses 8 through 10. This will be our text tonight. We'll be here in verses 8 through 10 and then also we're going to go to a passage in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be there quite a bit as well. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. Now let me say this right from the get-go. Verse number 8 is not saying that it's wrong to own land. Verse number 8 is not saying that it's wrong to maybe buy several parcels of land back to back. But what verses 8 through 10 are speaking to is what the Bible declares as the root of all evil. And what is that? It's the love of money. And what we find in verses 8 through 10 is greed. What we find in verses eight through ten is the love of money. What we find in verses eight through ten are individuals. By the way, the the thought here, especially with the nation of Israel, is that there were those who were buying up the land and they were not leaving any inheritance for the different tribes. They were supposed to leave the inheritance for their children and and for their grandchildren. And you had individuals who were getting all of these plots of land and there were some families who were never able to leave an inheritance to their children. And God Almighty said, that's not right. And so what we find in verses 8 through 10, it's not that it's wrong to have land because there are many of you in here tonight, you have land. It's not that it's wrong to have land. But the love of money is absolutely wrong. By the way, the Bible tells us, and we'll see it in 1 Timothy 6, the Bible tells us that not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. That's pretty serious, isn't it? It's the root of all evil. And by the way, let me say this tonight. It's not just wealthy people who love money. Poor people can fall into that trap too. The love of money is the root of all evil. Notice verse number 9. In mine ears said the Lord of hosts of a truth. Isaiah says, in my ears the Lord told me. The Lord spoke to me. In mine ears said the Lord of hosts of a truth. Many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. Now, he, he, in verse number 8, he speaks of the character of the people. And then in verses 9 and 10, he's going he's to deliver what's going to happen. What is the result? What is the consequence of these greedy individuals? And he said, In mine ears, said the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair. Great houses, beautiful houses, great and fair houses are going to be desolate without inhabitant. Verse 10, Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an omer shall yield an ephah. Take your Bible, hold your place, or put a piece of paper or something there if you can, or maybe just your finger, and then turn over with me to the New Testament, to 1 Timothy chapter number 6. Tonight I want to, I want to speak to us on this subject, the root of all evil, the root of of all evil. First Timothy chapter number 6. Now really the, the entire chapter speaks of, of money. But I want to begin in... By the way, let, let's just go back and read. We're not going to develop all this tonight. But let's just go back and read verse 1. Let's begin at verse number 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. That the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. They that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Now, these things teach and exhort. What are the things he's teaching and exhorting? How masters and servants, bosses and employees, employees and employers, are supposed to treat each other, okay? And so in verse number 2, he says, these things teach and exhort. And then in verse number three, he says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even though, see how serious even the relationship of a boss and an employee is to God? Right? It's, if it's important to God, it ought to be important to us. And he says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he said, This is a doctrine that's according to godliness. This is part of godliness. In verse number 4, it says, If this individual teaches otherwise, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmises, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such, withdraw thyself. And so his point is, look... These people are fighting and arguing, whether it's it's the master or or the servant, the boss or the employer. They're fighting and arguing because he says in verse number 5, because they have this in their mind, they suppose that gain is godliness. They suppose that treating their employee wrong so that they can take... A bigger chunk is godly. Or they they suppose that sticking it to their boss, not not giving a full 40 hours or not doing what they're supposed to, sticking it to the boss, that gain is godliness. But verse number 6, and he says in verse number 5, he says, from such, from these type of people, do what? Withdraw thyself. And then we have it in verse number 6. He's going to explain what godliness is. And he's going to explain what gain is. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we shall, excuse me, we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Pastor, does that mean I I can never work overtime, or I can never try to get ahead, or never try to get a promotion? It's not what he's teaching. But he is teaching us to be content. He says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich... That's the idea of a, a, uh, uh, an act of the will. It's a determination of the will. It's a drive in somebody that they live for being rich. He says, But they that will be rich fall... Into temptation and a snare, and into many foo- excuse me foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Verse ten: For the love of money, not money. The love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Let's pray tonight, and I want us to look at this subject: the root of all evil. I'll give you two thoughts tonight. We'll develop those tonight and hopefully be a help because look, look, we're looking at these because we want to make sure that we're salt and light, right? And I want you to think about this as we're going through the message and we'll, I'll ask the question at the end. But as we're going through the message, I want you to think in your mind, how does having a love of money, even as a Christian, the love of money is the root of all evil. How does having such a love They that will be rich, how does having such a love for money deter me from being the salt and light that I should be? How does it keep me? We we said that there are two things that keep us from being the salt that we should be. Contamination and dilution. Being contaminated and diluted. So, what does the love of money, how does that affect me or hinder me from being the salt and light that I should be. I want us to think about that tonight. Let's pray and we'll get right into the message tonight. Father, we love you tonight. We're so grateful for the opportunity to be gathered together here with your people and with our church family and I pray that you'd help and bless us tonight. Father, teach us, remind us of some things, things that we probably already know but Father, some things that we all need to constantly be reminded of and Father, I pray that you would do just that tonight. Father, help those that are sick tonight. Help those that could not get out tonight and could not be here Because of the roads, Lord, I pray that you would give them a blessing. Lord, I pray that they're watching online even right now. And Lord, I pray that you would just give us a good time together. Even though they may not be here present in this auditorium, uh, they're watching, they're with us. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, just give them a blessing as well. Lord, just we commit these next few moments to you. Uh, Father, we ask that your word would have its desired effect. We know that it will never return void. And so, Lord, when it's read and when it's preached properly and truthfully, uh, we know it's going to have an effect. And, Lord, I pray that it will do so tonight. And, Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Number one, tonight, if you're taking notes, or even if you're not, I pray that you'll take mental notes tonight. The first thing I want us to see tonight, I want us to see the definition of great gain. The definition of great gain. Now, back in Isaiah chapter 5, if you'll remember... The Bible says in verse number 8, Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. House to house, field to field. They, they, they have gathered up all the land that they can, and they're all alone, nobody else around, or, or at least in shouting distance from them. Okay, so tonight the definition, number one, the definition of great Gain. Somebody tell me, what is 1 Timothy chapter number 6? What's the definition of great gain? It tells us godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment. Now now hold your place again here and go back just a few pages to the book of Philippians. We saw this Sunday night. Philippians chapter number 4. Just real quickly and then we'll come back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Philippians chapter number 4. The definition of great gain. Great gain... Equals godliness with contentment. Okay, Pastor, I understand that, but what does that mean? Okay, we'll see that in just a moment. Great gain equals godliness with contentment. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He said, look, there are going to be times when I'm full. There's going to be time when I'm abounding. And then there's going to be times when I'm hungry, when, I, when I'm in need. But God has taught me that no matter what state I'm in, if I'm full, if the bank account's full, if my pantry's full, or maybe the bank account's a little low, maybe the pantry's a little bit low. He has taught me that I am to be content. And then verse number 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me because I'm content in every circumstance. We saw that Sunday night. The definition of great gain, great gain equals godliness with contentment. Okay, what does that mean? Two things. First of all, it means that we are satisfied with the essentials. Now don't misunderstand me tonight. That doesn't mean that we're to be complacent. That doesn't mean we're supposed to be lazy. Right? God absolutely hates laziness. Okay, so it doesn't mean that I'm to be lazy and just sit back and say, okay, I, I, I have every, my, my family has everything they need and, and, and we're just going to live this way. No, no. It, it, if God allows me to work and to uh, what we would say get ahead, God's not against that. But godliness with contentment means that we are satisfied with the essentials. You say, Pastor, I don't know if I agree with that. We'll look at verse number 8 again of 1 Timothy 6. It's what the Bible says. He says, and having food and raiment, that's the essentials, let us be there with what? Content. Having food and raiment, let us be there with content. So, first of all, it means that we are satisfied with the essentials. Number two... It means that we are seeking the eternal. It means that we are satisfied with the essentials. And number two, it means that we are seeking the eternal. Drop down, if you would, in chapter number 6 to verse 17. Verse number 17, 1 Timothy 6 verse 17. Paul says, "...Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust... In uncertain riches, but in who? The living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be rich in what? Good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. And then notice verse 19. Laying laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, verse number 19 of 1 Timothy 6, what, what does that make you think of, the very first part of that? Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation. Anybody, anybody think of another passage? Absolutely. So let's go to that passage. That's Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter number 6. So what does it mean? Godliness with contentment. Okay, Pastor, that's what 1 Timothy 6 says, but what does that mean? It means that we're satisfied with the essentials and it means that we're seeking the eternal. By the way, tonight we've already mentioned this. Contentment has nothing to do with whether we are wealthy or poor. It has nothing to do with that. I'll give you a good example. Two men who were wealthy, Abraham and Lot, both very wealthy. One man was content, one man wasn't. One man was content, Abraham said, Lot, you take whatever you want. There's enough here for both of us. You you take whichever land you want, and I'll take the other. Lot was not content with what he had. The Bible says he chose... By the way, I believe he chose a parcel of land that Abraham did not suggest for him to take. He chose a different parcel. Why? Because he wasn't content. You see, contentment has nothing to do with poor... or Well, poor people are content. Or, excuse me... Um, yeah, poor people are content and wealthy people are discontent. No, 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 or vice versa. We could say the, the, the you know, wealthy people are content because they have everything they need. Poor people are never content because they don't have what they need. has nothing to do with wealth or poverty. It has everything to do with our spirit, our attitude toward God Almighty. Abraham was content and Abraham was wealthy. Matthew chapter number 6, look at verse number 19. The definition of great gain, it means that we're satisfied with the essentials. It means that we are seeking the eternal. Abraham was content, by the way, because he was seeking, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, he was seeking another country. This wasn't his home. And if we put our roots so deep here, we'll never be content. If we'll put our roots deep there, then we'll always be content. Matthew chapter 6 verse number 19, the Bible says, Lay not for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man. No man. No man. No exceptions. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. The definition of great gain, it means that we're satisfied with the essentials. Number two, it means that we are seeking the eternal. That we're seeking the eternal. It's a wonderful thing that while we're seeking the eternal that God still blesses and that we're still content even when He blesses, even when He blesses because our eyes are on the eternal. I've told you all this before. I've told you all this example before. But when, when I was little and uh, we went to uh, New Union Baptist Church there in Manchester, Tennessee, there was a, there was a, a couple there. And, and to me, they were older. They probably weren't that old at that time. But as a five or six-year-old, you just think everybody's old, you know. And, and they were an older couple to me and um, just pillars in the church. I mean, they they served, they loved people, they served, they loved people, they they did everything in the church, and they served, and they loved people. And I I remember, and I've told you all this before, but I remember one time when my mom and dad, they, they were talking about them, not in a bad way, they were just in conversation, and they were talking about how wealthy they were. And in my little mind, I'm thinking... I would have have never thought that. Because they never came across that way. Because their hearts were, were, were not set upon money. Their hearts were set upon God. Their hearts were set upon serving God. Their hearts were set upon being faithful to the house of God. And they were wealthy apparently. I didn't know. I just knew they were always there and they were always serving. You see, godliness with contentment means that I'm seeking the eternal. Number one, the definition of great gain. Number two, number two, the deception of greedy goals. The deception of greedy goals, the definition of great gain. But number two, the deception of greedy goals. Again, notice in 1 Timothy chapter number 6, verse number 9, but they that will be rich. It's a deliberative determination. The Bible says there in verse... Uh, verse number 10. Notice what the, the little phrase in the middle of verse number 10 it says, Which while some coveted after. Is covetousness a sin? It's one of the Ten Commandments, is it not? And the Bible says, Which while some coveted after. What? Money. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, what have they done? They have erred, or erred, however you pronounce it. They have erred from the faith. So the deception of greedy goes. Let me give you four things here. First of all, the greedy man, the greedy man never has enough. The greedy man never has enough. If you're taking notes, let me give you a verse. Ecclesiastes 5.10. Isaiah 5.8, we've already read it. Ecclesiastes 5.10. The greedy man never has enough. Let me give you a good Bible example. Ahab and Naboth. Right? You know the example? Ahab was what? Who was he? He was the king. He was the king of Israel. Who was his wife? Jezebel. Ahab, king, had anything he wanted. And the Bible says there was a man who had a a vineyard hard close to the palace. Means he was right next door to the palace. Man's name was Naboth. Who wanted that vineyard? Who wanted the vineyard? Ahab did. Did he need the vineyard? Did he have to have the vineyard? No, but Ahab wanted it. He went to Naboth and said, Hey, I want your vineyard. I'll buy it from you. I'll give you another piece of land of equal value or even of better value. And what did Naboth said? Naboth said, The Lord forbid it me that I would give the inheritance of my fathers to you. The Lord forbid it me because he wasn't supposed to sell the inheritance of his fathers, so he didn't do it. What ended up happening to Naboth? Jezebel had him killed. The greedy man never. I didn't say the rich man. Because there are rich men who aren't greedy. The greedy man never has enough. Number two, the greedy man doesn't enjoy what he gets. The greedy man doesn't enjoy what he gets. The definition of great gain, the deception of greedy goals. The greedy man never has enough. The greedy man doesn't enjoy what he gets. Notice verse number 17 again. We read it just a moment ago. First Timothy 6 verse 17. He says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God. Notice this. Who giveth us richly all things to what? To enjoy. But you know what? The greedy man doesn't enjoy what he gets. Can I give you some examples? We just mentioned his name just a moment ago. Lot. Got what he wanted. In the end, did he enjoy it? All right, let me give you another name. Achan. Did he get what he wanted? Did he get what he wanted? Sure did. He took of the spoils. Joshua told him, you're not supposed to take of the spoils. Jericho is going to be defeated. You're going to go in. We're going to defeat it. We're going to take. But everything that's taken is supposed to be given to the treasury. It's it's committed. It's devoted, dedicated to the Lord. But individually, you're not supposed to take anything Achan took. By the way, it's interesting, very next battle in AI, when they eventually defeat AI, they get to take anything they want. See, if Achan had just waited, did Achan enjoy what he got? Here's what he got to do. He got to hide it in his tent and he never got to enjoy it. Because he, all of his family, all of his cattle, everything was stoned. Uh, Judas. Did he enjoy what he got? A matter of fact, he threw it back, didn't he? Let me give you another name. Gehazi. Anybody know who Gehazi is? I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. That's how I pronounce it. Anybody know who Gehazi was? was uh, Elijah. No, Elijah. Elisha. What did he end up with? He ended up with leprosy. Naaman is healed. Naaman wants to give Elisha some spoil. He wants to repay him. Elisha said, no, 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 no. But Gehazi goes back and gets some of the garments and gets some of the things that he wanted to give, that Naaman wanted to give to Elisha. And he got something all right. He ended up with as Steve. He ended up with Naaman's leprosy. You see, the greedy man never has enough, and the greedy man never enjoys what he gets. Let me give you a third thing. Look again at First Timothy chapter six, number three. The greedy man errs in his faith. In verse number ten, the Bible says, "For the love of money is the root of all evil," which. While some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Verse number 9, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The greedy man errs in his face, excuse me, faith. He, is, he lives with temptation. He lives with traps. Verse 9, temptation and a snare. And he lives with troubles. The Bible says in verse number 9, "...into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition." Verse number 10, it says, "...and pierce themselves through with many..." What's the last word there? Sorrows. Sorrows. The greedy man errs or errs in his faith. And then let me give you a last one. Not only is the greedy man never has enough, he doesn't enjoy what he gets... The greedy man errs in his faith. But number four, the greedy man is empty. He's empty. In verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 5, it says that this man joins house to house and field to field to the point where he is all what? He's all alone. He's all alone. Now the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that God did not make us to be alone. He said it's not good for man to be alone, right? Isn't that why He created Eve? He said it's not good for man to be alone. You know, The greedy man is empty. Go back to Isaiah 5. And notice verses 9 and 10. Specifically verse 10. The Bible says, Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an omer shall yield an ephah. Notice the fruit of the greedy man in verse number 10. Ten acres of vineyard yields one bath of grape juice. Anybody know what a bath equals? It might, it might tell you in your Bible. If you have a little center section sometimes, it'll tell you there. Anybody have that? Eight gallons. Anybody have any idea what ten acres of vineyard on average should produce? No, because I don't have a vineyard. No, we'll get to that in a minute. You're ahead of me. We'll get that in just a minute. One acre of a vineyard, on average, will yield four tons of grapes. Now, sometimes an acre can yield 12 if it does really well. But on average, an acre of a vineyard will yield four tons of grapes. One ton of grapes yields 165 gallons of juice. So four tons per acre yields 660 gallons of juice. So 10 acres should yield what? If one acre yields 660 gallons of juice, what should 10 acres yield? Just add the zero. 6,600. Okay, so compare 6,600 to 8. That's 0.1% of what it should have yielded. It's pretty empty, isn't it? It Kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? It's pretty empty. Now, He he doesn't stop with just uh, the vineyard and the grapes. And then He said, And the seed of an omer shall yield an ephah. An, An omer was between 10 and 11 bushels. And an ephah is just a little bit over a bushel. Now, normally if you plant... 10 or 11 bushels of seed, you expect to reap much more than 10 or 11 bushels, don't you? Because normally, for example, if you plant a a kernel of corn, you're going to get several ears of corn, aren't you? The Bible says here that they planted 10 to 11 bushels and they got one bushel back. That doesn't make much sense, does it? You see, that's what is going to happen to the nation of Israel because of their greed. In verse number 8, it tells us what kind of people they are. Verse 9 and 10 tells us the consequence. This is what's going to happen. In the end, this is what's going to happen to those who love money and money, or excuse me, love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Why doesn't the love of money produce anything? Because its root is dead. Its root is dead. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth what? Sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth what? Death. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, book of James. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The love of money is the root of all evil. And the love of money is the root. And if it's the root of all evil, and evil is wickedness, and evil and sin are going to end up in death, what it produces is death, nothing, emptiness. A greedy man is empty. He may have some temporary success. Think about this: the nation of Israel. It took it took years for the judgment of God to fall. Did it not? Okay, there, there were individuals in, in that time frame before captivity came. There were individuals who were successful, even in the midst of their sin. But here's the thing sin is only temporary. The success is only temporary. The pleasure is only for a season, and then the death comes. The emptiness comes. Sin or excuse me, lust, when it is hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The definition of great gain, godliness with contentment. It means that I'm satisfied with the essentials. It means that I'm seeking the eternal. Does it mean I can never have anything? No. But it means I'm seeking the eternal. With what God has blessed me with, you know what I'm using that for? I'm using it for eternal matters. That doesn't mean I don't have a home here. It doesn't mean I don't have a vehicle here. But I'm using it for eternal matters. I am laying up treasure in heaven. That's where my heart is. My heart's not here. First Timothy 6 again. He says in verse number 19. We read it just a moment ago. He says laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. It means that we're seeking the eternal, the deception of greedy goals. The greedy man never has enough. The greedy man doesn't enjoy what he gets. The greedy man errs in his faith and the greedy man is, excuse me, empty. By the way, let me ask you, how does the greedy man err in his faith? We we know there are temptations. We know there are snares. We know there are sorrows. The Bible tells us that in 1 Timothy 6. But how does the greedy man err in his faith? Okay, he puts what he wants before God. Now, remember the whole context here. We started in verse number 1. We didn't develop all that, but in verse number 1, talking about the the master and the servant, the the employee and the employer, the boss and the employee, he says there that the man who loves money, the greedy man, he errs in in his face. Why? Excuse me, I said that again. In his faith, not face. In his faith because he equates gain with godliness. That's what verse number 5 said. He equates gain with godliness. The more I make, the more godly I am. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so a man who loves money, he errs in his faith because he doesn't understand gain. He doesn't understand what great gain is. And great gain is godliness with contentment. He puts himself, he puts his stuff, as Miss Jennifer said, before God Almighty. How how else? How does He err in His faith? Really, here's what I'm asking. It's the question I asked at the beginning. When we love money, how does it hinder us from being the salt and light that we should be? How How does it cause us to lose our Savior again? Absolutely. And what does that cause us to do? He said we're more focused on money than what God has called us to do. We're more focused on money than on God. Okay, so what does that cause us to do? Idol worship causes us not to be a good example. Greedy causes us to miss church. Why do we miss church? Because if we work on Sunday, that's double time. Okay, and if I do that, we say, well, Pastor, man, it's double time. Double time, Pastor. Okay, but what does the Bible say? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. You see, many, many times it starts with one step. I do this, and then it leads to something else, and it leads to something. Hey, let let, let me give you, let, let me encourage you with this. Some of you got teenagers who are getting ready and some of them already are, but they're getting ready to start working. Your mom and dad, you do whatever you want to do, but I'm I'm just trying to help tonight. Don't you let your kids work on Sunday or Wednesday night. Don't let them do it. Well, sometimes they'll have to work on Wednesday. Okay, when that happens, it leads to another thing and another thing and another thing. And before you know it, they're out of church. And they've lost their savor. So, the love of money, how does it hinder me from being the salt that I'm supposed to be? Because I become contaminated with the things of this world. I get my eyes, as has already been said several times, I get my eyes fixed on the things of this world instead of on the things of that world. I get my eyes fixed on the things here instead of there and I begin to lose my savor I begin to lose my saltiness somebody said it um, not be a good example I'm not going to be a good example I'm not going to be salty. think about our nation and I'm done it's it's 8 o'clock almost 8 o'clock think about our nation Several years, it's been two or three decades ago, our federal government went hard after cigarette manufacturers. Right? Why don't they, and by the way, I'm not defending cigarette manufacturers, that's not what I'm doing tonight, but here's my question why don't they go just as hard against the alcohol industry? Because they love, that's a good answer, they love their booze and they love the money that comes from it. You want to find some of the nicest buildings that any businesses have? Just look at the beer distributors. And I'm not talking about the big companies. I'm talking about local companies who distribute the stuff. They have the nicest offices, the nicest buildings, the nicest vehicles. Why don't we go after alcohol like we go after cigarettes? Because of the love of money. Because alcohol, I don't know the statistics so I can't speak tonight. But alcohol, I would imagine, kills more people than cigarettes do. It gives just as many diseases as cigarettes do. But what's the difference? Cigarettes do make a lot of money, don't misunderstand. But it's the money. It's the money. By the way, why do some people who held strong positions against alcohol, when they begin to be promoted in their business or in their company, they start to lessen that position on alcohol. I'm not saying everybody does that. I'm just saying some. We have a hard line against alcohol, but they begin to get promoted, and they begin to get promoted, and they begin to have to go to parties. And I've told you all this before, but uh, when I worked at my old job, and I had been there, I don't know, I'd probably been there seven or eight years at the time, and uh, we had a meeting one day, and they restructured our company, and they they made area managers in the three different sections of Tennessee, West Tennessee, Middle Tennessee... And, and East Tennessee, and I had been there longer than anybody. And the young lady that was promoted to area manager of Middle Tennessee, which was our biggest market, I trained her. I try to keep my spirit right. My spirit wasn't great that day. And I walked out of that meeting and went to my, not my office, my cubicle, went to my cubicle and I just had to sit for a while. And I walked in my boss's office that afternoon and I asked him, I said, do I need to be looking for another job? And he said, I know you're upset. He said, but Tim, if I had promoted you, he said, you would have to entertain people and you would have to buy alcohol for them. And he said, I know you won't do that. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. But why do some people, when they get to that position, they say, oh, no, 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 it's okay, I'll, I'll buy it. If it means I'll get a raise or a promotion, if it means I get a few more thousand dollars a year, I'll, I'll do it. Why do they? Do it? Because of the love of money. And when they do that, if, if they're a Christian, if they do that, then what happens? They've begun to lose some of their savor. And they've begun to put a bushel over their light. That's why these passages are so important. Because that's why Israel got to where they were is because they stopped being salt and light. They, they allowed themselves to intermingle and to mix with the heathen nations. And they, didn't have, they, weren't, they weren't salt or light anymore. And God finally said this is what's going to happen. God's long-suffering finally came to an end to the point where He had to bring judgment upon His people. The root of all evil is the love of money. Listen, dear folks, and I know who I'm preaching to tonight, but we can, all, we can all be tempted when it comes to this matter of money. God help us tonight that we're not tempted with it. God help us tonight that We say, Lord, I understand what the definition of great gain is. Yes, I want to improve in my business. I want to improve in my job. I want to work hard. I want to do better. But God, I'm going to be content with where you put me. God, I'm going to seek the eternal. That's what Even if you bless me, Lord, I'm going to seek the eternal because that's great gain. And I'm not going to have greedy goals because that just ends up empty. Father, thank You for the time You've given us tonight. Father, help us as we go to prayer in just a moment. Father, I pray that You'd incline Your ear toward us. Give us safety as we go to our homes tonight. Bring us back together on Sunday. Lord, I pray that most everything will be cleared up by Sunday and everyone will be able to get back. Father, we just ask that You give protection tonight as we go home. Father, thank You for Your Word. Father, help us with it. Father, help us not to be a people who are greedy. Hard workers, yes, yes want to do all to your glory, yes, but not lovers of money because it's the root of all evil. Father, help us tonight. Thank you for the time you've given us and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's spend a little time in prayer. Families, if y'all want to stay together and let's pray.